Amen. Thank you, choir, reminding us of how beautiful our Savior is. You know, uh, Thursday night, we went to see some of Jude's buddies play football at a J.T. Moore uh, Weston Middle School uh, football game, and the sun was going down, and I love these fall clouds. Have you noticed the clouds lately, these kind of wispy clouds? I'm not, I don't know what you call them. I'm sure someone here uh, who has some kind of uh, smarter uh, education than I do uh, could tell me what kind of clouds they are, but uh, it, was, it was really neat to see these kind of wispy pink clouds, and Isaiah said, those are the most beautiful clouds I've ever seen. Look how beautiful the clouds are. Dad, look, they're beautiful. And I said, they are beautiful, buddy. And I love that he appreciates the aesthetic beauty of God's creation. But just a good reminder, do we find Jesus to be beautiful? Is he our beautiful savior who we long to gaze upon and whom we love and adore? That's a good reminder, choir, to, to remember that our Jesus is a beautiful savior. It's crazy to think that we only have four more weeks in the entire book of Isaiah. Those of you who are struggling with Isaiah, hang in there. You only have four more weeks. We're going to do Advent series uh, called An Unexpected Journey. Yes, Evan, that's a Hobbit reference. You'll, you'll love that. Uh, and then we're going to move into a new series in 2022 on letters to the church from the Apostle Paul. So those of you who've longed for some good New Testament meat, you're going to get it uh, next year. Don't worry. Uh, we are headed that way. Last week, we, we looked at chapter 60 in Isaiah, where God builds this beautiful and safe city from which his people can dwell. And, and there, there they will effectively be the conduit of God's blessing into all the world, just as he intended for his people to be a city on a hill, a, a beacon of truth, of hope, and of healing. And we've talked before about the tension in Isaiah with timing, right? God's timing isn't our timing. God doesn't exist in space and in time like we do. God invented space and time. He is pre-existent before space and time were a thing which is why Isaiah calls God the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning, he's the end of all things. And what he's showing Isaiah in this section of Isaiah is a glimpse into the way things ought to be, the way that God intended for things to be, the way that things are going, the, the way that things are becoming, and the way that things will be one day. All of this shows God's plan for flourishing, God's faithfulness in how he's bringing heaven to earth, that he's got a plan to fix what's wrong. We know in Genesis that God made a very good world. But then the crown of creation, the human beings that God made in his own image chose their way over God's way, plunging all the creation into death and darkness and decay for the first time, but God knew this would happen and he didn't sweat it. He's got a plan to fix it, to make everything new once again. And that plan centers on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. But that plan was always intended to be carried out by God's people, God's special family set apart for this purpose. And the really cool thing for us is that we get to live on this side of the cross, that we get to be the new covenant 
people of God doing the same work that Abraham's offspring were supposed to do all along, to be the conduit of God's blessing in the world. And this is all happening now, but not yet. Now, but not yet. The timing is tricky. Yes, Jesus came and, and changed everything, but we still have work to do. I love how Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright puts it. You, you have to hear him say this with like a British accent and a big beard. I'm not going to try it, but uh, May could do a great British accent. I'm not going to do it. People get very puzzled, he says, by the claim that Jesus is already ruling the world until they see what is in fact being said. The claim is not that the world is already completely as Jesus intends it to be. The claim is that he is working to take it from where it was under the rule not only of death, but of corruption, of greed, of every kind of wickedness, and to bring it by slow means and quick under the rule of his life-giving love. And how is he doing this, Wright says? Here's the shock through his followers. The project only goes forward insofar as Jesus's agents, the people he has commissioned, are taking it forward. So if we're gonna see God's flourishing in the world, it's gonna start with children in Lunsar. It's gonna start with Nashville Rescue Mission. It's gonna start with Room in the Inn. It's gonna start with a church plant in Phoenix. It's gonna start with all these different mission partners that you see on the back of that sheet today and us being faithful to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. If we're gonna be effective as agents of reconciliation in this world, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 we are, then we're gonna need some serious training. We're gonna need a, a transformational kind of training that makes us into effective agents of redemption. Have you ever known anyone who's gone to West Point? Sorry, you Navy people, this may offend you if I talk about Army people, but uh, you ever know anybody that went to West Point? I had a friend who was, you know, he was a smart kid. He was kind of shy and, and nerdy and, and skinny, and he got into West Point. And uh, his name was Kevin, and he, and he went to West Point for a semester, and he came back at Christmas break, and he'd put on like 20 pounds of like pure muscle from doing, you know, a billion push-ups every day, and he shaved his head, and I promise you, he grew like two inches because he just stood real tall and he, you know, looked you in the eye and shook your hand. And it was just intense, this, this radical transformation that our military academy had had upon Kevin's life just in, you know, five months of that semester. We have something better than West Point. We as Christians have an inner transformation that comes from a new birth in the Holy Spirit as he makes us new from the inside out and works in us as we become united to Christ and conformed to his image. In today's text, we're gonna see how we become priest, how we become priest and so much more, how God's salvation changes everything about us and for the creation, for the sake of the world. It all starts with the gospel of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. So we're going to read a, a very famous text, one of my favorite texts in all of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. 
We're going to see in our outline what the anointed one does. It starts with the work of the Messiah, the one who's anointed by the Lord. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of, God, of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It results in God's glory, this transformation that the Messiah brings to us. The Holy Spirit is upon the anointed one of God in an amazing way. And, and what Isaiah didn't realize at the time was it's because the Holy Spirit is of the same essence as the Messiah. Isaiah had no way of knowing that the Messiah would come with the Spirit because he was united with the Spirit in the Holy Trinity from before all time. Therefore, he has the greatest anointing ever. There are people in the Bible who receive the Holy Spirit. You and I can even receive a special anointing of the Holy Spirit for a special season or a special task, but no one has ever been connected to the Spirit like Jesus and the Father are because they're part of the same essence, the same being. And how do we know this is about Jesus? Because he said so. Because Jesus himself confirmed that he is the one that Isaiah 61 is in fact speaking about. In the first sermon that Jesus ever preached, he confirmed this fact. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for Jesus' first sermon? It's a lot better than my first sermon, I can promise you that. Better than any sermon I've ever preached. In Luke chapter 4, <coughs> we read these words. Jesus came to his hometown, to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. What an amazing, powerful moment. But the first, the people are amazed by this. They're like, wow, little Jesus is all grown up now and he can read and, and he's, he's preaching. This is great. Little hometown preacher boy, Yeshua. Where'd he go, Yeshua? This is Joseph's kid. Look at him. And then Jesus starts to explain that, that, that they're on the wrong side of things that they're not okay because they're part of the ethnic people of God, that on the outside, even though they may appear to have it all together, on the inside they're rotting and they're actually against what God's trying to do. So he's gonna reach out to the nations now in a global 
act of reconciliation, and it infuriates the people in Nazareth to the point where they try to kill him. They try to throw him off a hill. We would do well today to heed the message that the Messiah brings to us from Isaiah 61. What is that message? It starts with six infinitives. You remember what infinitives are from high school English? It's the to-do form of a verb, right? To do something. The first thing that, that this uh, infinitive that Jesus says the Messiah has come to do is to bring good news. That's blank number one if you're doing your outline. It's the same message that was proclaimed to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem on the night that Jesus showed up in earth. The entire Christian message can be summed up in the angel's message. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for some people? No, that will be for all the people. You know, infomercials promise good news, right? But wait, there's more. <laughs> Politicians promise good news. I can fix what's wrong with our society. But this is the good news. The Messiah comes to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God has somehow forged a way to make this world right, including you and including me, human beings as the crown of creation, and God has always had a soft spot for those who are suffering, right? For those who are marginalized, who are on the edges of society, those who are heavy burdened. The, the messenger here, the Messiah, the anointed one, says this good news is for who? It's for the poor. The commentators say that that refers to people who are afflicted. That it refers to people who live under heavy social and economic burdens, it, it says people who are humble, people who are lowly, people who are in trouble. Remember, Jesus said that the doctor doesn't come for those who are well. They don't have a need for a doctor. That's why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt in and of themselves. Those who bring nothing to the table that is good in and of themselves because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we understand today how needy we are? How poor we really are? Do we think we have it all together? Next, the, the Messiah comes, the, the second infinitive, to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up the brokenhearted. Psalm 147 verse three says that's the work that God does. That Yahweh himself, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The anointed one comes to do the work of the Father. This makes sense, right? That Jesus, who was one with the Father, comes to do the Father's will. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted and to heal their wounds. Third, the Messiah proclaims liberty to the captives. He comes to proclaim liberty, to preach freedom, the opening of the prison doors to those who were formerly in chains. I love to see uh, Celebrate Recovery when, when people find uh, that the, the chains of addiction are broken by the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're set free. They're, they, they're in this world of recovery where they're surrounded by the grace and the community of Jesus Christ. God has a heart for those who are captive. 
I love the work that Chuck Colson, he was a former, uh, he was an administrator uh, in the Nixon administration, and he was put in jail for his role in the Watergate scandal. And in prison, he found Jesus Christ, and when he got out, he started prison fellowship that ministers to those who are in prisons. I love that Woodmont has a long history of ministering uh, to those who are in prison, that Lipscomb University, where I got my doctorate, that we went and, and taught uh, alongside of, and we learned alongside of women at, at TPW, Tennessee Prison for Women. I love that this Christmas, again, Don Abel has uh, led us to go to the Lois DeBerry Maximum Security Prison for those with special needs to provide a Christmas banquet to those who are, are really left alone, not only by their uh, families, but, but by all of society that has turned their back on these guys and girls. We care about them because God cares about them, because God cares about them. And we seek to meet their needs in the name of Jesus Christ. Fourth, the Messiah comes to proclaim, to preach, again, the year of Jubilee. You say, what? I don't see that in the text. Yes, it is, okay? The word Jubilee isn't in there, but that's what is, the Messiah is talking about, the year of Jubilee. It was described in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the, the, the first five books of the Bible, in Leviticus chapter 25, God told his people every 50 years, you should set all the captives free. Open the prison doors and let everybody go. All debt is canceled. All debt is wiped out. It was a fresh start. It was a clean slate for everybody. Guess how many times the Old Testament says this happened? <laughs> it never happened that we know of. Could you imagine today if, if I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm gonna write my congressman and say, hey, I think it'd be really cool if you just like wiped out all debt and let all the prisoners go. You think they do it? Probably not. Probably not. But it's going to happen when the Messiah comes. The Messiah gives everyone a chance for a clean slate. The Messiah gives everyone a fresh start. Fifth, the Messiah comes to comfort those who mourn. People mourn for all kinds of reasons. There's a lot of mourning in our world right now. I, I, I don't know if, if anyone, I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone who hasn't lost somebody in the last 18 months. We've done a lot of funerals here. It's, it's been a, a tragic time for, for healthcare workers, for, for ministers, for, for a lot of different professions and a lot of different families who have, have seen loved ones transition from this life to the next. There's been a lot of job loss. There's been economic hardship, political frustration. There's lots of fear and anxiety and loneliness. And whatever people are sad about, the Messiah comes with the remedy. He comes with comfort, not a quick fix. He doesn't come with some kind of easy solution. He comes with ultimate hope and healing and comfort that goes beyond comprehension. Finally, the Messiah comes to give good for bad, to give good for bad. That's what God does, that's this business, 24 seven, he's working good out of bad. Look at the cross as a, the, the greatest example of a terrible, terrible thing that God redeemed and used in a powerful way. God doesn't waste pain. In verse three, he says, okay, no more ashes on your head. You know, in biblical times, people would put ashes on their head as a sign that they're mourning, a sign that they're grieving. God says, no more. 
I'm giving you one of those big hats that you see at Steeplechase. You got one of those hats, Jamie, don't you? That's what he's saying. I'm going to give you this beautiful big hat that you see at the Kentucky Derby. We don't have a lot of hat ladies here. We had some hat ladies at my church growing up. A big, beautiful, fancy, expensive hat. We were in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and we were walking down the street, and we saw a haberdashery. You know what a haberdashery is? I told my kids it's where they make expensive hats and, and makes you feel like a million bucks when you wear one of those hats with a big smile on your face. That's what God replaces our grief with through the work of the Messiah. God's people will be transformed. They're going to be covered, anointed even, by the oil of gladness instead of the ashes of grief. They'll, they'll be wearing fancy church clothes meant for praising God and celebrating instead of wearing the rags of a worn out spirit that a lot of us are, are wearing a lot these days. We then gain a new status. We become oaks of righteousness, verse three says, planted by the Lord himself and bringing glory to his name, showing the world how awesome he is. Okay, why? Can we dress fancy so that we can feel good about ourselves and be secure as an oak and, and just be proud of ourselves? No, we have work to do. We have a job to do, we have a purpose. Look at verses four and five. They then shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. This is a, a, a big turnaround because God's people become now renovators. That's the next blank on your outline. We become renovators. Craig Shepard totally stole my thunder on uh, Wednesday night at the business meeting. He's the chairman of our finance committee. And he quoted this, this verse four in a reference to the, the ruin that Marcus just showed us in Lunsar that the school is now, because of our donations, is able to rebuild this ruin so that life and learning and Christian education can happen in what was formerly, since the Civil War, just a ruin. I'm not very handy, I'm not, you know, Logan was on, uh, what is it, This Old House uh, on PBS. I'm not ever gonna be on This Old House because I'm not very handy, but we all are now in the renovation business. We all, as Christians, are in the home repair business, except we're not repairing our homes, we're repairing this world in which we dwell. We are building up what has been ruined by sin and suffering. We're partnering with the Holy Spirit to bring hope and healing to our neighbors and to the world. The end of verse four refers to the way that generational sin has wreaked havoc on our families. Generational sin has wreaked havoc in places like uh, Northern Ireland where David Gregory just got back from Northern Ireland. Places like the Middle East, like Afghanistan, places like Haiti where violence and, and injustice seems inevitable, seems endless and hopeless. But because the Messiah has come, we now get to partner with strangers, it says in verse five, with the nations in bringing about good things, the produce of flocks and fields. And we also have a holy liturgical, we're not just renovators and farmers, but 
we become priests as well. We have a liturgical responsibility. You're all called to ministry, right? If you're a Christian, you are called to be a priest of the Most High God. Look at verses 6 and 7. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. We all become the go-betweens between this world and God. That's what a priest does, ministering the goodness and grace of God to a world that desperately needs it. The people of Israel had the Levites, right? The Levites were that tribe that was set apart by God in order to teach the people of God God's ways, to instruct them in the way that they should go, to help them make sacrifices and, and cultivate healthy worship, to take care of God's house. But God had a plan for all of his people, not just the Levites, to be priest. All the way back in Exodus 19, one of my favorite passages, verse five and six, he says that all of Israel is to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. God's people are all supposed to minister to the world. And now the nations come to join in that work and the new covenant people serve God together with every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we're not on our own here. God didn't just sit back and say, good luck. Look at verse eight. For I, God says, this is for the nations. This is not just for our sake. Sorry, the next blank in your outline. This is for the nations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Just like Abraham, we're blessed, why? In order to be a blessing, a conduit of God's grace in the world. You know, God is committed 100% to us. He's gonna see us through the mission. He's gonna fulfill every promise for the world through us, through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Let's rest in that blessed assurance Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We've become heirs of salvation. And his promise in verse eight and nine leads to the Messiah giving words of praise. That's the, the blanks in your outline. God's promise leads to praise. In verses 10 and 11, we don't have time to read it, but the, the Messiah praises God for what he's doing. And that plan is, is for all the nations. And that brings us to our last section, who we then become fully transformed as the new people of God. Look at chapter 62, verses one to three. Again, the Messiah is speaking here, confirming his work of salvation. He says he's not gonna stop until rescue has come to God's people. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. That's the holy city of God where we live. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. 
You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It's an incredible transformation from ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. We become this beautiful uh, transformation. As, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus' work, we shine God's rightness out into the world. We shine the righteousness of God with a brightness that the world cannot deny. Verse 2 says that we'll be given new identities. A new identity, that's the next blank in your, your outline. The bright righteousness of God, then the new identities. In biblical times, you know, names were inseparable from your identity. Who you are is your name. And the actual naming is not just a, a label. It's not just a new name tag that God slaps on us. It's a new identity. The actual name takes place in verse four, but look at verse three first. We see that we become, the next blank is we become God's pride and joy. Think of Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? We've become the pride and joy of God. We become the crown jewel which God shows off to the rest of the world that shows that he is the ruler of it all because we are his joy. Then look at the name change, verse four and five. You shall no more be termed forsaken. That's not a good name. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. What God's saying here is you're gonna be pursued and claimed. That's the next two blanks on your outline. There's great rejoicing at the union of the exiled people and God's promised land coming together again. The exiles are pursued by a loving God and they're brought back by his grace and united to the land. Let me just say, this is not saying that single people are not pursued and claimed. It's saying the opposite, single, Married, widowed, divorced, all are pursued and claimed by the good and loving God of the universe. And that brings us to our last point. We become tireless intercessors in bringing about God's work. Tireless intercessors in bringing about God's work. Look at verses six and seven. It says, on your walls, we have verse six, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. He's saying, wear God out with your prayers. Think of Jacob wrestling with the angel until he received the blessing. That's the idea here. Tireless intercessors. We actually believe here that prayer changes things. We, we do a pastoral prayer in the, the, the service. We list prayer requests in the e-news because we believe prayer is effective. Interceding on behalf of another is powerful and effective. James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We say goodbye to our television audience now as we wrap up the sermon and just got a couple more things to say about prayer and how it affects us. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, 
in Luke chapter 5, he gave them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. We just prayed it. But then he says something just amazing. In Luke 11, verse 5 to 9, he says to them, which of you has a, who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I think Jesus is being funny here. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, because of his persistence, his stubbornness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Do you pray like that? Wear God out. How does real revival come to our church? How does revival come to our city? Remember Ray Ortland said this, this section of Isaiah is about revival, about being renewed in the spirit of God. It doesn't happen just through fall festivals or through missions giving. Revival comes through the tireless intercessory prayer of God's people, watchmen who've been set on the walls to wear God out and praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done in Woodmont, in Nashville, and on earth as it is in heaven. Let's allow today the, the salvation that the Messiah has come to bring, let's let that salvation transform us into who we were meant to be, priests with a new name, a new identity, bringing about God's plan breaking generational curses and bringing about the flourishing that God desires. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you have sent the Messiah to do all these things, to proclaim freedom, to proclaim liberty to those who are poor, to those who are needy, to those who are empty. God, I, I pray that you forgive us for thinking that we're okay without you. Remind us that we need you every hour. And in our neediness, you meet us with more grace and more love than we could ever imagine. God, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news that you came to proclaim. Lord, I pray that you would use us as you give us a new identity in you, as you reconcile us to yourself Use us to reconcile this world to you as well. May we be ever vigilant in looking for opportunities to be your hands and feet. God, we thank you for the $183,000 that this church has strategically given through our missions committee, through our special offerings, and through our church budget in order to bless the world and meet needs in your name, all for your glory the glory of your, your name, which is high and exalted above all other names. God, I pray that you would continue to work on us, work in us, work through us, so that we can see your goodness and your glory even further as Nashville is transformed, as the world is transformed, as you would have it to be. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of reflection now and response. Uh, I invite you, if, if you are feeling like the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and you need to surrender to him for the first time, 
Don't wait any longer. I'll be down here in the front. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ and to receive the free gift of salvation that he comes to bring by grace through faith in him. Maybe you realize you've, you've never taken that step of baptism and, and you want to be baptized by immersion as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful outward symbol of an inward reality. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church and you want to say, I, I'm in as a member. I want to, I want to give my, my talent, my time, my treasure here and plug into what God's doing through this body of Christ. We're not a perfect body of Christ. And guess what? No church is either. Only Jesus was. Only Jesus was but we're on a journey together and it's exciting to see lives transformed here at Woodmont and through the work of Woodmont. Whatever it is that you need to do today, let's stand and sing and deal honestly with the Lord. I need thee every hour. Sing it from your heart to his heart. Let's stand.